Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the whole Accidental Gods project. This podcast, the website, and the membership portal that arises from it. And now as we head towards the end of the third series, we have been striving to find that extraordinary generative intersection between art and activism, politics and philosophy, science and spirituality, from which we can build a vision of a future that is flourishing and generative for all of us, for the human and the more than human worlds. And my guest this week shows us the best of this. Mac McCartney has poured his life's considerable energy into helping people of all ages, creeds and colours to find the best of themselves and then to express it in the world. Mac's an author, an educator and a facilitator. But none of these really gets to the heart of what he does. He writes books that reconnect us with the heart and soul of our own land. His latest is The Children's Fire, Heart Song of a People, and it's just won a Silver Nautilus Award, most deservedly. As a teacher, he's been granted an honorary doctorate by the University of Plymouth for his contribution to education of all ages in all ways. He's given four TED Talks, count them, four, and he's been on the Sustainability Advisory Board's of top-flight A-list companies as they made their way to becoming B Corps, which is a huge step in that world. He's the founder of Embercoom in Devon, an absolutely glorious, magical, mythical, transformative community and heart-based living centre. And it was there that I met him, in his cabin on the edge of the lake. So most of all, Mac is the kind of man who gives me hope for humanity. He lives and breathes the essence of what we could be if we all found the best of ourselves and lived an open-hearted, full-hearted, strong-hearted life. So people of the podcast, please welcome Mac McCartney. So Mac McCartney, it's been a really long time. You were on my first list of people I really wanted to ask on the podcast way back in January. So entirely my fault that it's taken this long, but I am honoured and so glad that you've been able to make the time to come and talk to us. Welcome to Accidental Gods. Thank you, Amanda. I really appreciate it and I'm delighted to be a part of it. Thank you. So you're down in Devon. Um, are you in your beautiful cabin at Embercombe? I am, yes. <laughs> oh, it's so gorgeous. Everybody listening, it looks out over a pond mm. and looks up to a wooded valley and it's one of the most tranquil, peaceful, grounded places I have ever been. So I will be imagining you there. We might be able to get a picture of that. We might try. So you founded Embercombe, which is really how I got to know you. And before we move into how the world could be, I think it would be really interesting for people listening to have a sense of where you came from and your vision then, because you are one of the exemplars, I think, of the sense that human intention is one of the most powerful forces on the planet. And if you have a grand vision, it can come about. So 
Can you give us a kind of potted history of where, how you got to where you are? Yes, sure. Um, there's so many twists and turns in this story. Hmm. Let me just say that I was, I have been fortunate in many ways. Uh, fortunate in that I was, um, you know, born into a family that was very loving and uh, unusually uh, demonstrative, physically and emotionally demonstrative, uh, given wow. the the years when I was born, 1949. Yeah. And, that uh, is unusual. Yes. And also my parents uh, loving nature and, and, and assuming, and they didn't need to encourage us outside uh, as much as we possibly could. Their willingness to sit on beaches in the pouring rain, huddled together while we played and swam in the <laughs> for hours, and the, so that was I'm, I am fortunate in that way. Uh, then there have been many challenges, and not least was a, a sort of uh, undiagnosed dyslexia of a particular kind uh, called dyscalculia, hmm. which. Um, resulted in me being 25th out of 25 in the D stream pretty much all my school life. Oh, my gosh. And growing up with an absolute belief that I was stupid um, and born into a, a very brilliant uh, family, which they, they are, really. And that, I, I realized, uh, it was just a while ago when a jigsaw puzzle arrived through the, you know, to, to my uh, little boy, and the the sort of sudden physical sensations I felt when I remembered the horror and fear I had of those things when I was little and the games that we used to play around Christmas, Mm. uh, I would always be the the worst performing person in the family. So, you know, in one way it doesn't sound like much, but it did mean that I grew up uh, with a fairly profound, um, very low self-esteem except and apart thank goodness, if you like, for my physical ability, which was considerable. Hmm. So I sort of um, lived with that for a while, but a whole series of experiences, a car accident in which the other person lost their life and was a woman, and in the inquest it came out that she um, had left the pub um, shouting at her lover that um, she was going to kill herself on the first person she met. And uh, and she and that was you. straight at me, yes. And then it killed her and it nearly killed me. Gosh. A whole multitude of other experiences which were very harsh and very difficult and always mixed in with the beautiful, of course. And and nature was really my was my god and goddess. And I, in the end, brought me to a point when I just thought, well, I, I can't really participate in this life unless I can find a way in which I can bring all the things which I feel to be sacred and love so much to the forefront of my life and, and live uh, for those things and speak for them, act for them, all those. And that led me to the real feeling I knew that I needed another education <laughs> aside from the one I'd received. And so I began to search for indigenous uh, people who could, um, who could teach me. What sort of era was this, Mac? Because I'm thinking this was long before shamanic stuff became yes. fashionable in the West. Uh, 70s. Right, very long before. Middle 70s to late 70s. Right. So that was before even Joan Halifax and Michael Harner were beginning 
to yes. become known. Yes, I mean, they, I can't remember when I first saw their names, um, but I mean, you know, when you talk about indigenous people, there, there were, to my knowledge, only two options. One was Aboriginal Australians, uh, which were the other side of the world, mm. and the other was Native Americans. So mm. there was nothing about South America, nothing about plant medicines, of course, nothing. Nothing about the Sami or no, anything like that? No, absolutely not, or not that I was aware of. And yeah. books-wise, there was nothing uh, other than the usual until um, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee came out and then uh, a book about Rolling Thunder and Lame Yes, yeah. I remember reading yeah. that. Yes. So I wrote to those people and right. asking them to teach me. And I did get a letter back from Rolling Thunder's camp. Um, but anyway, meanwhile, I had, after many, many false turns and some incredible adventures, um, I found my way to being taught by a group of Native American medicine people. And I, that lasted for 20 years. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the greatest gifts they gave me, and they didn't just give me gifts, I have to say, it was, um, you know, it was mixed. It was a wonderful experience in, in all kinds of different and surprising ways. But the greatest gift was when they said to me, Matt, it doesn't matter how many uh, Kiva ceremonies, Bauer ceremonies, Inipi ceremonies, Earth Sundance ceremonies, whatever that you do. In the end, these are not your ceremonies, and you are not, as it were, of us. Mm. You have your own mountains, forests, streams, you know, um, your own trees, your own sacred places. So, in the end, all we can do is help you unlock the door to your own indigenous past, your own yes. relationship with our Mother Earth, and then you'll be, as it were, uh, on your own. Yep. And But in relationship exactly. with the Earth, which yes. is what matters. Yes, and so in that sense, not alone at all. Yeah. And, and that's really what brought me to this place. It's, uh, it was their invitation as Native Americans, I should start speaking, which I frankly was terrified to undertake, I, nothing frightened me more. It was their invitation that got me writing, of which I had to battle so hard with this feeling that, you know, every book I open, it always on the first page somewhere it says, you know, fellow of some <laughs> distinguished university, you know, and, and, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I'd because my education was as it is, I don't know, I don't even know the parts of speech, you know, adverb, right. preposition. Yeah. I mean, I can't put it together. It's entirely intuitive and just through reading a lot. So so anyway, I became a writer and a speaker and, and of course, also a facilitator of learning about ourselves, about life, about our earth, and an inquirer, an explorer into things uh, spiritual. Yeah. And the sharing of how to grow into relationship yes. with the earth. Yes. And really in a but in a softer, gentler, I hope more compassionate way than the manner in which I was taught. Yeah, yeah, it's probably not for this podcast, but I do remember listening to you and thinking how very harsh some of it was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And perhaps I'm prepared to believe that there's a mindset that says that's necessary, but I'm not certain that it's necessary or useful mm. now. No. Anyway, yeah. 
move beyond that? Because then you became quite involved in working with quite large companies for a while. And then you found the valley at which Embercombe is now situated. Can yeah. you say a little bit about that? Um, about the company, how I got into with the companies to begin with? Well, I think that was useful. It's useful. Yeah. I think it's yeah. interesting because you were and still are speaking to some of the people who are at the highest levels of making decisions that most of us don't reach and mm. whose decisions could make material differences to how the world works. Yes, yes, that's true. And, and you know, nobody's more surprised than me that it still seems to be the case. But how it happened? Well, I escaped out of London, um, you know, because I was keeping bad company and I, I really needed to get as far away as I could. I trained as a gardener because I thought, well, at least I'll be outside with plants and I know I'll love doing that. I became the gardener at a leadership development center, specializing in outdoor leadership development, which was very big in the early 80s. Hmm. And intervening in a fight between two supermarket executives when I was a gardener uh, and and then managing to get them to sit down and 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 reconcile and find the learning, I overnight became a management consultant. It must have been that some of your training with the group in the States gave you the skills to do that? Well, it's interesting, Amanda. This was pretty much exactly at the same time I began that training with those people. Oh, okay. So I don't really know where it came from. Uh, but um, I had had a lot of life experience and I did know already quite a lot about people, not least because I'd I'd had to learn quite a lot about people. It's how I survived, really. Yeah. So even, uh, then, I, I, yes. Yeah, so three years later, I was the head of consultancy, and then I started my own business in the UK, and then later in Russia, and then in Poland. And in really, I never particularly. I loved working with people. But it was a mystery to me as to how really this had happened, except that I liked that it helped me feel really competent or, or discover my competence, if you like, in working with people. And I also thought, I think uh, justifiably, that via this way, I might one day be able to sell my business, in, in a, uh, raise the money to buy land hmm. in which to create uh, embody a, a vision I'd had in my early 20s of a valley where we would ask the question, what does it really mean to be human? How might, how might we live in this on this earth in a different way? And, um, and I never did sell it, but one of my clients brought me on board and said, we think we're going to make a commercial fortune and we'd like you to work with us so that when the day comes that we sell the business, and realize that fortune, we'd be able to put our hand on our hearts and say we did it with integrity in good faith. Right. So I did that, and five years later, they sold it to Warren Buffett. And Gosh. He, he then, yeah, he then said, do you have a dream? I said, yes, it's this valley, and I described the valley. And he said, what do you need? I said, I need the valley. And so he wrote the check that bought 50 acres of Devon's this was Warren Buffett, or this was one of the people that you had been working with? who sold it. Okay, Buffett. who sold to Warren Buffett. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that they had been able to work with integrity? Is it well, possible you know, to work with integrity within the current system? Well, I would just say, <laughs> I mean, I don't, uh, I couldn't say that I live my life with total integrity. 
Mm. Maybe there are one or two people that can, but I couldn't. I say I, I do my best, and I, I think it's it, I do okay. So was this business? All I can say was he was he was scrupulously honest, right, and and open, and in any measure of how most NGOs. A public sector or private companies are run. Yes, absolutely. He was a person of integrity. Brilliant. And um, I do really respect him for that. Yeah. And he wrote you the check, and, and you were able. Yeah, he wrote the check. He wrote me a check and said, "If I if the land I find costs a bit more, then you know he'd top it up." And the place I found was twice as much. And he, after wow. some resistance, he, he doubled it. <laughs> Gosh. And Enbakum arrived, and we had our valley, and then, of course, the real work began. <laughs> yeah. How long ago was that? That was May, well, when I we bought the land was May 1999. Right. Yeah. Right, so 20 years, effectively. Right. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And it's such a beautiful place now. I'm imagining that the winters particularly were very hard in the early days before there were yeah. long-term, relatively long-term structures. Yeah. Because now there's a beautiful hall to work in. And I particularly remember you made a stone circle which now has oak trees yeah. around it, just as a, a small insight into the way the world works. Can you tell us about the oak trees around the circle? Yes. Well, it, you know, first of all, the stone circle. I mean, how did I find those people that taught me in the very early 80s was because we heard there's a group of Native Americans moving across Britain, visiting our sacred sites. We didn't know why. For three years, we tried to find them. Every year they left in the autumn and returned in the spring. Eventually, we found them. And that's how I connected with the group that taught me. With that same group, something like 15 years later, I discovered why they'd been walking, visiting our land in that way. And it was to find uh, a sacred site, an ancient sacred site, where they could perform a ceremony to ask permission to build a new stone circle in Britain. Wow. They, just, they, they received that from a stone circle in Ireland. And they said to me, we believe the place that this stone circle should be constructed is Embercombe. And just before we go on with that, why did they want to do this? Because they're from yes. North America. What had drawn them to the UK? Had they dreamt this? Yes, they did. They had. And and it was um, in recognition of Britain as this colonial power that had swept around the world, rolling out the story that we now live within. Hmm. And yet, uh, to their, I mean, you know, amazingly, really, they said, but you, but you're nation or has has never been only that it has also been a land of the freedom fighters of people like um you know william blake and mary wollstonecraft and countless others you know who have mm. fought for a different kind of world yeah. so so we feel that uh, and and our dreaming tells us that from this same land, and I'm not to say only this land, of course, you know, Europe and, and various others, but here we wish to set a prayer, and that prayer is a call to the people of these islands that they wake and remember their Earth Mother and remember that they were once an Earth loving people and that now is the time to stand 
and and as it were rediscover sacredness and right. take action for the world we'd like to live in. Right. And so you have a stone circle yeah. on Ambercoon. Yes, and that, then you ask about the oak trees. So so then the stone circle was constructed and suddenly a year later the first tiny oak appears. We are all just can't understand how it got there because we're supervising the tree planting. None of it is anywhere near the stone circle. Uh, the following year there's 30 trees. The next year there's 50-odd trees and so it goes. And eventually we discover it's the jays, the birds, the jays. Planting acorns, it's extraordinary. Yes. And why round the stone circle? Why not in the middle? Well, it's very practical, really. We used to cut the grass in the middle, and on the outside the cattle grazed, the the animals grazed and things. But in the tussocky grass around, around our stone circle, the oak grove came. Yeah. And, and you know, Manda, this is... Sometimes I sense people are disappointed that it was, as it were, a rational or practical. A pragmatic. Yeah. But for me, that's not what magic is. That's not what, you know, it it is this beautiful unity. The mystery of how life somehow gave us the grove of oak trees planted by the birds, just Mm. like our ancient sacred sites two, three thousand years ago. Yes. Yeah. And it's just as possible that two or three thousand years ago that the feet of people within a stone circle would have had the same effect yes. of making the grass shorter yes. and that oak groves would have arisen for exactly the same reason. Yes, yes. yes. It's glorious. Even it reminds days, me. Days never forgot. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you remember, and this is, listeners would have to be in the UK and of a certain age to remember this, but when I was probably teenage, the BBC in the days when it still did amazing and remarkable things, yes did a series of people living as if in the Iron Age. Yes, I do. Yes. And they discovered they had, um, there were things that had been found in the doorway of Iron Age roundhouses where right at the threshold was a scoop. Um, And they thought maybe it was a place you'd put a cauldron, but it's a kind of weird place to put a cauldron because it's right half in and half out of the house. And maybe it was for votive offerings. And everybody, all the archaeologists, had their own ideas of what this scooped out bit of earth. But in every doorway, it was always there. And it wasn't until they ran the reenactment that they discovered it was the chickens. And for reasons only known to chicken kind, they really wanted to make their dust baths right in the centre of the threshold of the roundhouse, and they made the same scoop every time. And I thought, you know, archaeologists for however long had been writing papers about what this obviously was, yes. and it was the chickens. <laughs> and I thought that was just so glorious. And it's the same kind. This is the jays are planting the what will be an oak grove yeah. for as long as humanity is there with that circle. Yes. It's, yes. it's glorious. I do love So, well, let's just stay with the oak circle, because yeah. I know that you've held many really quite profound ceremonies there. Mm. And the intent is of the native peoples that you first met who were asking in the ways that they knew how with the heritage that they had back to a living tradition, Mm. whether it was appropriate and possible to build a new stone circle here. They found that it was and they did. Mm. And the aim was to set a call to the people of these islands to wake and remember their earth mother and to stand and take action in her name. Yes. And now that the circle exists, mm. 
Have you seen that essence and that energy arising? Yes, I have, Manda. I have. And of course, it's deeply moving. And I see how many people long for this, you know. Mm. And if I can also add, it's something, this is not, when we do ceremonies within the stone circle, and the ceremonies that we do at Embercombe, they are not ceremonies predicated on belief. Yeah. You, you do not have to subscribe to some belief system. Yes. You only have to open your eyes to the beauty of the sound of children playing, of, of, of people being people in community, doing things, sharing things, cooperating, collaborating with each other, to the extraordinary phenomenon of spring yeah. or, or to the to the 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 wind that is breath to sunshine that is light and our eyes if you like to the earth under our feet all it, it it's so ordinary in many ways yeah and and yet and and really uh dis- rediscover reverence for the privilege of a life on this earth yes i think everything is transformed in that in that way then we begin to to um, move and think and operate from an entirely different place. Yeah, and this is how we change the world, is to find that reverence for the yes. privilege of life and to live that in every moment, then we can't help but live differently. Yes, that's it. Magic. And so, moving to now, mm. and the world is changing faster than it was when you and I first met. Yeah. How has lockdown been for you? We we in Britain, we're coming to what seems to be the slightly tattered end of a lockdown that may or may not be over. Um, yeah. Have you seen in whatever bubble existed for you in lockdown, where you were, in the slowing down of the way people have lived, have you noticed people beginning to find again that reverence of the privilege of a life on this earth? That's a bit of a loaded question, but let's well, go with it. Yeah, no, my so my lockdown was spent uh, near my well, at my home, and my home is not at Embercombe; it's about three miles away right. from. And Embercombe. with your family, obviously, you've got a young son. That's, a, a wife. That's and right. Son. And my, yes, <laughs> and um, and so the answer to your question, my my primary experience of how things change was was located in that village and there i would say it's been very similar to the occasion of a couple of winters ago when it snowed quite heavily surprisingly mm. for a few days and our village looked like an alpine uh, little uh, similar village if you like and and there was a couple of people skiing down the main street everybody talked to each other People would hail each other, good morning each other, inquire as to how things were from each other. There was a warmth and openness and a hospitality. And that has been the case during lockdown um, in in our village, albeit from a kind of two-meter, rather rather sort of embarrassingly held. Strange, yes. a very British way of not quite wanting to hug anyway. But now we definitely can't. We think we might like to. Yes, yes. yes. And what I love about this, this so this is multi generational, yeah. and and they are what one might call just 
ordinary folk, and some are wealthy and some are not, and some are young, some are old. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not the same as an image, say, taken from uh, deep inside mm. one of our cities, but it is yeah. what it is. And in that basis, it was, it was really lovely. And has that continued as lockdown has lifted? My experience of it is that it has, uh, it, that it is still the same. And because relationships were formed um, and people started speaking, and I think once speaking, um, the inclination mm. is to yes. continue. And I must say, it's a little bit, uh, I think, as uh, most dog owners know, you know, people automatically gravitate. Well, my dog yep. is my small son, and, and he hails everybody with a very hearty good morning and how are you and where are you going and what's yep. that you're carrying and all these kind of things. So even the more reticent, uh, even uh, sometimes rather um, dour uh, folk often find themselves bewitched and beguiled by his uh, open-hearted um, acknowledgement of them. Yes. And, and so have you also found your reach around the world has extended during lockdown? Because I think you and I were on an event at Embercombe relatively early on mm. um or it feels like that i think probably it wasn't but never mind mm. um and it seemed to me that the necessity of where we were and what we were doing and the availability of technology that probably didn't exist in in the same way mm. even 2 years ago we were able to begin to talk to people further afield have you found increasing interest beyond these lands or is it the case that most of the people who want to listen to you are still of this particular land mass um no there's no doubt about it uh, really that during this period lockdown period both my and embercombe's reach has uh, dramatically increased internationally and uh, in our own land hmm. in some ways Mine uh, was already doing so within those countries where either English is hmm. like the Netherlands, where it's, you know, many people speak, and then across New Zealand, Australia, right. the States and other countries. Um, I'm sure much less so in other countries where that's not um, the case. But yes, it has extended. and uh, And sometimes really amazingly, you know, like, emails coming to me from someone in China somewhere and various other places and and it's surprising little moments when you realize there's a whole little network of people who are mm. tuned into and for whom these uh, online uh, talks and various other communications are are like a, a glass of water to a yes. very thirsty yes. person and I mean that really for me just brings home the responsibility and the and the wonder of how technology has enabled this and the responsibility that, that people like me and many others carry in what we say. And how we say it. And you've done at least two TED Talks, which I will link to in the show notes, which are both very inspiring. And I don't want to reprise them particularly because people can go off and listen yeah. to them, and I highly recommend yeah. that they do. But particularly, there was one where you said that there are three questions that anyone can ask themselves yeah that struck me as one of those things that everybody should just have on a post-it note on their desk to check in with the nature of what they're doing. 
And without reprising the whole mm. talk, yeah. I wondered if you could just lead us through yeah. those three. Yes. So the first one is, what is it that you most deeply and profoundly love? And just to say on this, so this is not a this is not a, a, a two two three hour workshop sort of question. If you see me, it's it's not a question for this month. It's a it's a it's a revisited question forever through throughout a life, because things do shift and change and deepen yes. and whatever. And the and the emphasis is on the words deeply and profoundly, and and and. In many ways, our culture, our society is is so averse to anything mm. that is deep and profound, really, <laughs> antithesis. And so, we are we have at this point to even begin to explore what what does that mean? You know, deeply and profoundly, and then love, not you know, be interested in curious whatever, but love. Yeah. So, and when we probe that question, my my experience for many people when they really go there and they're willing to share the answer is i i never have i never have deeply and profoundly deeply. loved yeah and that's a and there's a sort of shocking chasm of loneliness and right. and um and you know, this awful silence really but you know at the same time for those that can bring themselves to this place, then there's this wonderful, one could imagine a person shaking themselves off, standing up and saying, well, I'm not willing to live without experience." Because imagine death, you know? getting to your last moments, knowing they were your last moments and realizing that in the entire span of your life, deep and profound yes. love had never reached in. Oh, yes. And, and you know, Amanda, I had such a person who came to Embercoon. You know, three months left to live, Gosh. thirty years old, and that was that was what that was the grief that she faced. the The wonderful side of that story is that in at, at the point that she left Embercoon, after shedding like gallons of tears into our lake, she set her face to how she would live this last three months. Right. You know that that this last three months would would be her a sort of resurrection, if you like. That she would live that last three months in a way she had never lived the previous thirty years. Goodness! And so it was amazing. So when we ask that question, what I think it leads us to and uncovers is we we answer the question: What is sacred? Yes. To us, and then I would say that is the the banner you know that is the flag that is the whatever under which we yes. then stand and pledge our loyalty to really so that's the first question the second one is what are your deepest and most profound mm -hmm. gifts and and it's not qualifications it's not you know it, it it's it's nothing except gifts and i suppose it is predicated upon the um upon uh, a little Piece that was given to me by the, the the indigenous people who taught me, who said, you know, when a when a human embryo still in their mother's womb, prior to being born, if you like, creation whispers into their into their being, I am placing a tiny little piece of my genius deep inside you, 
when you are born, your journey is to discover this gift, grow this gift, and ultimately share this gift. Wow. Yeah. And I love that, you know, because I just think, like, I don't, you know, do I have to bother whether I believe it or not? What about I just simply work on that hypothesis? You know, I have a gift. Yes, it doesn't have to become a belief system. It just has to be a lived reality, which is a different thing. Yes. And I think, you know, if we work from that position, you know, some law somewhere says we will discover it. And, and, uh, and, then, and then that gift, whatever it is, should, of course, become the center of our work because we will shine uh, in that when we, when we work from that place. We'll be seen, we'll be most likely rewarded in different ways. And so it'll, it, it brings with it yes. deep happiness and, and a lovely sense of fulfillment and purpose. But the, the, the very, again, the, sh- the shadow of that is that when you work with people on that question, you realize that the vast majority of people have a very low opinion of themselves and that you know they might have a mask or something which they wear in front of themselves and, and they may even pretend to themselves. But many, many people uh, actually uh, discount themselves as being of importance in, in the bringing about of this um, this world that we'd love to live in. And so, before we go on to the third one, because you work with a lot of people who come seeking the answers to these questions, and we've discussed on this podcast mm. before that that our culture particularly trains us from a very young age into the fact that we are, we need to judge ourselves because we are worthy of judgment and that we are actually very bad at everything that we do and failure is ingrained in us in ways that I think in other cultures is not necessarily the case, but we are where we are. And my Mm. understanding particularly of the work that you do is that you can help Mm. people to learn to live in a way where that doesn't feel like a bedrock reality. Because the problem can be we can can do, I am in every way in every day better and better, but we don't believe it. We have to come to a point where it's not just words that we've read in the self-help book, it's an actual part of the way that we live and then the change happens and so I wonder for those listening because we discussed this on a podcast very recently and I've had a number of emails in the space since that went live Mm. two days ago saying I am that person I I live with a sense of failure and I would really like to offer listeners a way to begin to live not with that sense of failure yes so you know, we all speak from our own well of mm. ignorance, if you like, or our own, you know, like, I only know what I know. What I do know is, and what served me most wonderfully was when I was, when I first met those Native Americans, they said, Mac, you seem to be a man filled with sadness. You, you you are so full up with sadness, we are not even sure mm. you wish to live. And was that true? Yes, it was true, yeah. They said, they said, you know, if you, do you want to die? If you want to die, we have ceremonies that will help you die. We, we can even get the drums now, we can begin the ceremony very soon, you know, you want to die? We can make die, it happen. Then wow. we'll make it happen. And really, we'd quite like you to arrive at that decision fairly quickly, because we've got other stuff we need to do. So, 
you know, you want to live, you want to live, then you have to commit right. to the journey. You have to commit to this journey, this journey of healing, this journey of becoming, this journey of becoming whole. You have to face your fears, your demons. You have to enter, walk towards all those things. And you have to also open your eyes to the beauty, the, the ocean of beauty that is all around you and the privileges of, that have been heaped upon you, including the challenges that you've received because they've actually given you the chance to bring you, you would never have come to us if you hadn't had those challenges. So for me, it is, um, they, they used a lot of analogies uh, really to do with battle. And then at that time they said, you are always forever trying to run away off the field of battle. You have to turn, walk towards, and actually deep in your being, this is the person that you right. really are. You know. And 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 when they said that, I felt thrilled, yeah. you know. I felt the hair on the back of my neck rise. I felt, yes, you know, because I I have a almost I could use the word savage love for hmm. this land and for this and earth and people, the the whole business of life. And I am almost bored with being this very saddened rather bruised um person and it's it's right. fed up with and it. it's that sense of challenge and that sense of the noble warrior i think is a very profound and deep metaphor in our culture of if we can i i get a bit stuck on the myth of redemptive violence but even so that framing of it as mm. turn you're running away you're running away turn and face those things and be the best that you can be in the moment. Because, you know, yes. we all know that some people in war find the best of themselves, and that doesn't mean war is necessarily a wonderful thing, but finding the best of yourself in the moment. Yes, yes, well, that's it. And, you know, it began there. Now, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not filled with the same images, mm. as it were. I'm not, you know, it's a much more gentled, and peaceful yes. But for some people, that might still be the first step. It feels a, it's an interesting metaphor to explore. If you feel that you are filled with sadness and not certain that you want to live, then that's, it's an avenue to look at, at least. It is. And so it's that, it is that commitment to the journey and the realisation that there is, whether we, we experience, like today has been everything uh, down here in Devon. It's been hot and sunny. It's poured with rain. There's been thunder. It's just classic. Devon. It's Devon. You get everything every day. <laughs> yeah. And of course, we have the same in our lives, don't we? We have, we have, we have the years when, when it's just cold and wet, as it were. It's the years when our table is heaped with food and the days, years when there's hardly yes. anything there. And we have to understand it's simply weather. Yes. Nobody promised us a rose garden. But that doesn't stop it being beautiful. That's right. I remember the first vision quest I ever did a long time ago with Leo Rutherford, and it was, it was the was summer solstice, and it rained and it hailed and it yeah. snowed in the space of, um, <laughs> I think I don't know, I think it was out for four or five days. But then the sun came out, and it was such yeah. an extraordinary metaphor for yeah. for life. Yes, yeah, yes. great teaching. Yes. So, what is the third of the questions? Yes, thank you. What is what are your deepest and most profound responsibilities? 
So love, gifts, responsibilities. And I like to feel this one's like a, like a stone drops into a, a, a large expanse of perfectly still water and it goes out. Because... Of course, people fairly immediately go to their immediately to their close circle of most loved and intimate relationships, but it continues, of course, to go out, and it, and all the time it's it's throwing invitations back to us. You know, um, how how wide does this go? Does does somebody else's are somebody else's children yeah. included? Is 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 it only human or does it extend yes. to more than human um, does it does the screams coming out of the lebanon is that anything to do with me do i do i give that account you know it goes on and on and i think in the end it can feel overwhelming it is overwhelming but if it brings us to our knees with this realization that like the old dialect lakota when there's no word for animal, no word because right. they're not other, right. you know, that yes. we are family. And, and the joy of our difference, and, and whether it's between people or to rock, water, plants, tree, you know, birds, sky, air, that the whole thing, you know, we are responsible. We are, we are uh, as it were, mm. sons and daughters of this extraordinary thing yes. and we are invited to to behave yeah. you know to the rest of our family as, as if such. we were family yes the rest of our family yeah yeah so when i think when it, the responsibility question really helps just guide i think and is uh, be, remain mindful and and uh, it is uh, probably the more sobering question of love yes. and gifts but then but responsibility I think one of the things that struck me in lockdown is that if we ask the average person on the street, so my go-to at the moment, I spent six very dispiriting weeks trudging around the West Midlands at the time of the election last last winter, talking yeah. to people yeah. that are not usually part of my bubble. Um, and so yes. I'm becoming really very, very aware of the extent to which I live in a very particular bubble. Um, but I think if we went and asked mm. any of those before lockdown what their responsibilities were, it would have been to pay the mortgage, to probably pay off the car. It, it would have been functional things that existed within the constructed economy that rules their lives. And the thing about lockdown was those responsibilities went away for 12 weeks because there was no yes. way to pay the mortgage or pay off the car. And you know, to a greater or lesser extent, the government filled that gap or didn't. But either way, it wasn't possible for that to be at the forefront of our minds. And one of the biggest changes, I think one of the reasons that our various governments are desperately trying to get us back to business as usual is that it is essential for the system to function that we believe these to be our primary responsibilities. But as soon as they're not... People, I think, began yes. to realise that there was a different life to be lived. And I think yes. if we can help yes. people to build the networks that allow that different life to be lived, then the old system begins to mm. become redundant, however hard the people who profit from it endeavour to keep it going. 
Yes, because it's only our willingness to participate, isn't it? Yeah. You know, we we if if we actually make a different choice, it's a little bit like when I realised that well, we as a as a tribe of children in our classroom realised that uh, you know the 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 power that the teacher had was yes. really quite illusionary. We just didn't. We we only had to make the decision not to cooperate. Yes. Yes, there was a very interesting tale from ancient Rome that I found when I was doing the research for the Boudicca books of, of uh, obviously not terribly bright senator, at one point decided it would be a jolly good idea if all the slaves were made to wear an armband of a particular colour. And his slightly right. brighter colleagues managed to pin him to the floor and go, you realise that there are 600 of them to every one of us, don't you? And that helping them to realise this is probably not a terribly good idea, <laughs> because you know, that that way, you know, Spartacus lies, and they'll probably not end up all being yeah. crucified on the road to Rome this time. So, and it's it. Yeah. I was sat on the roads in October last year for Extinction Rebellion, and there was a particular chant yeah. which was, "Whose police? Our police." Whose democracy? Our yes. democracy. Whose parliament? Our parliament. And the one that said. Police, we love you. We're doing this for your children too. And and we could go into the problems yeah. of that if we wanted, but let's not bother. But I noticed if one watched the police, first of all, they were massively outnumbered. And, and second, yes. that sank home in ways other things really didn't. And, and yeah. We, yeah. we have policing by consent. We have government by consent. And yet... What they do are things yeah. to which none of us would rationally consent, um, and so yeah. I do have a vision at the moment of a of a log in a forest, and it looks on the outside it looks big and thick. It's an oak log, and it's many many feet thick, and it looks solid. And the mycelial mm. growth within mm. it, the fungi within it, are growing and growing and growing, connecting and growing, and it's amazing and vibrant. Yeah. And at some point, an elk comes along, <laughs> and I do not know why it's always an elk in the vision, and it just it's this log which right. turns to dust, and inside is this extraordinary, vibrant growth. Yes, and I have a feeling that the the frantic efforts of our various governments are the shell of the log, and if we can build yeah. the vibrant growth inside, we can render it redundant, whatever it does. Um, yes, what a wonderful, wonderful. And vision. so I'm wondering if. If you were to look forward, let's say 10 years, and we have built the mycelial network, and by wonder, the log has crumbled without actually collapsing the whole of our society into somewhere where we end up being kebabbed on piles of burning tires by our bigger and stronger neighbours, um, which is, you know, that we all know that vision. It has been built many, many times. We don't need to revisit it, and we know you and I, and I hope by now the listeners, that human intent shapes the way energies go. And if we give our intention to that kind of vision, we could shape it. Or we could choose to shape something much more generative. So I wonder if you could build a word picture, just envision on the spot if you like, how would a more generative future feel like to you? The picture that comes into my mind is the picture that I saw when I had the vision of this valley that later became the Valley of Embercombe in my early twenties, when I was in Charnwood Forest uh, outside Loughborough in the Midlands, and I and I saw this valley. 
in my imagination. And all the things that fill human lives were contained within that valley. There were people, as it were, who were experiencing that first intoxicating rush of of love, as it were, when you look into somebody else's eyes and, and suddenly mm. there's this knowing. There, there, there is a young man who is angry, you know, pissed, and is is sort of kicking a log down the track. Everybody's his enemy, and 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 it's wonderful. It's he's just going through his stuff, you know. What I mean? But he's held in that. That's right, exactly. He's held. There is this incredible holding. There is the acknowledgement of everything that is around. There is a profound sense of the fecundity of the whole valley. Everything is growing and, and, and sort of moving. And then in the seasons, you know, dying back, but there is this living, breathing, pulsing feeling of the vitality of life, like a great drumbeat or heartbeat moving through mm. the whole thing. So there is emotion, there is tears, there's laughter, there's, there's play, there's, there is, you know, a willingness of people to come together, not to be communities of like-minded people, to be communities of people who often do not have like minds, but have found it in themselves mm -hmm. to sit together yes. and to listen to each other in ways, listen with their hearts, listen with their heads. But it is not anti-technology or anti-science. It's the understanding that all these things can come together. So it's not a, some kind of utopian picture of us sort of going backwards. It's, it's saying, no, we are, we are traveling onwards and forwards, but, but we place beauty at the, at the center in the way. We understand, I think it comes from an understanding of the first principles of why are we here at all, if you like, and the, the purpose of a human life, you know, to learn to, to learn and grow, to, to as it were, as uh, my teachers, indigenous people said, to, to change essence, um, to sort of, through our choices, refine and deepen. And that's ourselves. what changing essence means? Yes, yeah, I mean, they, they had this lovely picture, they said, before before arrived, well, it began with we don't understand this thing of escaping the wheel of incarnation, said, because our dreamers tell us that the spirits are just queuing up for the yeah. chance of a life on earth, because it's here that we we become embodied, and we are given this profound gift, which is the gift of choice, and then the multiplicity of all the choices we make in our lives have the capacity to change and shift our essence. So when we go back to spirit, we have perhaps changed that in some form or, you know, in whichever direction our choices have taken us. Mm. But I love that, you know, it's, it, I enjoy it. And, and again, it's a sort of invitation to, a, to, to try and live in a, anyway, a more beautiful way. In a way where when we go back to spirit, the essence has changed in a way that we are proud of and can celebrate yes 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 beautiful and there's fun and there's silliness and there's sort of you know mischievousness and there's all these things and but we 
our young people are held. Really, we have entirely redefined the purpose mm. of education and makes a, uh, an education. We, you know, all those moments of enormous shifts in our lives, like around puberty, around whatever stage it is, are held within ceremonies that allow us to move through and be be seen and held. Yeah. So we have rites of passage, essentially. Yeah, yeah we have rites of passage, and death death is seen for what it actually is and has has always been, and so we're not frightened of death. We simply love and are um, in relationship with the thought that while we have life, we live. I think it's a Bernard Shaw thing, to live while we, he said in one of his plays, to live mm. while we are alive. And then alive. to die because that's it's the time to let go and move on. Yes. So my vision, Manda, we, we have not discovered how to live eternally, as it were, because I believe that if we ever did that, we would the value of the life would would be so yes. massively reduced. Yes, I, I am halfway through. Yes. I have a, a film script that I'm writing called It's Only Hell of You Remember. Um, yeah. yeah. Yes, which is based exactly on that. Yes, because dying is an integral right. part. It would be like waking and yeah. never sleeping. No, you would get really, yes. you would get to the point yeah. of really wanting to have a night's sleep. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, that is really lovely. So... I'm already exploring the second podcast that we could do, which would be to design an education system for our young people that would mm. leave them fully equipped yeah. to help us yeah. to build this. Because as you say, the education system we have just now, which herds us into classrooms and then seems to be going backwards at the moment mm. towards learning Latin <laughs> and things that Michael Gove yeah. thought were yeah. useful um, and not, not, yeah helping us to be the humans that we can be that would be fun no and and you know if, if you imagine in the staff room you know and teachers sitting around and and just restating one of the key things no child will leave this school without yeah. feeling good yes without celebrating their gifts yes. and and yeah and yeah. having value and i I think in that single, and of course the the older people, you know, we call them in from the periphery, and we call them in because we push them out. But not only we did we push them out, but they colluded mm. with it. You know, so we say, we say no, you come back in, and like the um, Tuhoi Maori who I met when I was in New Zealand, and they said they they demand of their older people that they they step up in profound service to the people until right. the day they drop. And I, I, I think that's so helpful to an elderly person because it, uh, it moves you away from this sort of rather morbid sense of coming, everything coming to an end, yes. to a feeling of, no, this is, this is a flowering. This is a, a real, real big yes. giving. and the native peoples that I learned from said that the young people and the old people are the ones closest to spirit. The people in the middle are the ones who are having yes. to do you know, the work of maintaining, but the old people can tell us of the world of spirit because they can see it, and the young people can show us because they have just come from it. And and that way yes. the cycle makes sense. And I'm thinking in this school that we're developing, if every child, if the questions that they are given every day are the three that you said, what is it that you most deeply and profoundly love? What are your deepest 
and most profound gifts? And what are your deepest and most profound responsibilities? If those were the questions of school, not can you do quadratic equations and have you worked out the parts of grammar and do you remember the kings and queens of England, then, then we would have different people. We would. We'd have different people. And people and many people would still learn those things because they want to. be fun. Yes. Yeah. So for some people, the most deepest and profound love would be for mathematics. And that's fine. Or, or for English or for history. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah that would be fantastic. It would be such an inspiring place to live. And then as we get older, we keep asking ourselves, what are our deepest and most profound responsibilities? May well be to the young people of our communities to help them to ask those questions. Yes, yes, exactly, Amanda. So, I mean, I imagine humour being a big part of how we would be. We'd almost as a species rediscover <laughs> our sense of humour, you know, and and not take so much, so, so much that we take inappropriately, as yes. it were, so seriously. If we're not as afraid also. I think we, we take things seriously yeah. because we live so, in yeah. constant fear of the future and bitterness of the past and and as you say we've lost the the kind of regenerative joy in the present and it's hard yeah. to have a sense of humor if one is in constant fear it so is, we need to find that so we're coming to the end of our hour we need to stop yeah. shortly but one of the things that i believe you're still doing and that has been transformative for so many people is that you lead the journey at embercombe Mm. And and you said committing to the journey while we've been talking is really important. And I wonder, for people listening who might want to come and study with you, can you, without saying anything mm. about the nature of it, give an out- outline of the intent of the journey? Well, the intent really was to to take what I'd been given, or the the core, some of the core, the subs, the the yeah, of what I'd been given. And then find a way of creating a, a, a weak experience that would move a hand, as it were, through the rib cage of def- defense that we have and squeeze um, heart and, and allow people an experience. And it is, it's a series of really quite profound experiences to glimpse how that life, in a sense, might be lived more fully, more authentically, more truly. Mm. And um, in many ways, the content of the program is very simple, yet somehow in the manner in which we hold it, I don't know. I think it's because it, it somehow succeeds in speaking to the uh, sometimes unconscious, occasionally conscious longing that sits inside people, hmm. knowing that something that they long for is very close, but they can't quite reach it. So during that week, we we intend that they reach it, even if they then it eludes them, and they then they then, as it were, commit to the journey, and and basically, as I refer to in one of those talks, of, of begin commit to the mm. the long journey yeah. home. Yeah, yeah. I've I've 
had a number of my students have, have gone through this journey with you and have come back afterwards, transformed people. And it seems to me that you are weaving a magic that is very little known in this land and that gives people that opportunity to delve into the miracle at the heart of their own life and immerse in it and step out again having seen that. Yes. And that that's one of the most profound gifts yes. anyone can offer another human being. So mm. anybody listening, um, I will put links in the show notes so that you can find Mac and find the journey. So I think we need to draw to a close. Is there anything that you would like to say in closing? Um, only, I think, that I, well, to reiterate what I said at the beginning, Mando, which I deeply appreciate you inviting me to contribute to this podcast. Um, and I, I also deeply appreciate uh, people that are listening, you know, because we are all simply trying to uh, offer something. And, and that is where all these threads will meet and make something truly magnificent is because it's the thread of our gifts, mm. combined gifts, isn't it? It's the thread of our combined um, love of this earth and willingness to, to engage the journey that will bring us to that yes. future yes. way of living. And we can smile at this, you know, sunrise and think, wow. <laughs> that didn't look too possible to begin but with, but are. my goodness. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful, yes. And I think also that one of the things that I think you and I both experience is how much help there is from the spirit world when we open our hearts and ask for help. And it does seem to me yes. that if we were destined to crash ourselves into a brick wall, I'm not sure the kinds of help that we were, we are being given would be quite so forthcoming. I like to think not. I like to think we are being offered mm -hmm. the help in order to not crash into a brick wall, in which case we have to give ourselves absolutely wholeheartedly to whatever it is that we each can do to change yes. the, the trajectory of the vehicle that we're in. And you are one of those people who, yes. is, who is so wholehearted and so committed and teaches with such beauty and heart. So, Mac, thank you very much. I hope that we'll thank find time for you to come back again sometime and we can talk about other things on the journey. Thank yeah. you. Lovely. Thank you. So that's it for another week. Enormous thanks to Mac for asking the questions that open our hearts and for modelling such an authentic way of being. I will put links to his TED Talks and to the journey in the show notes. If you haven't explored the journey already, it is genuinely life-changing. And so, as I said at the top, we are nearly at the end of season three. To be honest, the distinctions are arbitrary. We just get to a number of episodes that I think is useful to have in a season. And my plan after this is to continue to interview the people who really inspire me and who are making genuine change in the world so that we can get the word out of what is possible. But next week, if all goes according to plan, you will have me flying solo, giving a roundup of where we've gone since we started at the winter solstice of last year. As I'm recording this, we have just passed Lamas, the full moon was a week ago, and the world between now and last December has changed. 
beyond all recognition. We know this. So partly, I want to do a roundup because I think there are things that would be useful to have collated in one place, because there are things that have changed in my understanding that I want to say, and partly because Caro's going on holiday. Yay! And I want to shift the schedule around a bit so that she can actually take some time off. So it'll be me next week, then back to conversations. And in the meantime, thanks as always to Caro for being our executive producer and our sound engineer and for making the music at the head and foot of the podcast. Thanks to Faith Hillary for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to come and find us, we're at accidentalgods.life. The show notes are there, the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations in the resources section, and the Accidental Gods membership program, which is a structured training designed to give you the tools to make the connections that I believe need to be made to bring us all to the point of conscious evolution, to that place where we can make the next evolutionary step one of consciousness and we can choose it, we can make it a conscious choice to do so. So if you're interested in that or if you know anybody else who really wants to find the answers to Mac's three questions, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.